please. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. It's the start at 6.30, so let's make a start. Yes. Um, my name's Nat LaRue, Chair of the Constitution Society. We are a politically non-aligned educational trust which works to improve the quality of debate around constitutional reform. And the debate tonight marks the launch of this book, which you've hopefully all got a copy at the end of the peer show, edited by Alexander Fitzpatrick from the Constitution Society. It's a collection of responses to the draft bill on Lord's reform from a cross-section of academics, peers and MPs. Let me begin by thanking Centre Forum, the Liberal think tank, who are our co-publishers, and also the public policy group here at LSE for organising this event tonight. Well, when inviting tonight's panel, we thought we achieved both a party political balance and a balance between supporters and opponents of a mainly elected Lords. Unfortunately, Hillary Benn has had to pull out at the last moment for reasons associated with the House of Murdoch. Um, but I'm, I'm pleased to say that Patrick Dunleavy, who, like Hillary, supports a wholly elected upper house, has agreed to step in at very short notice. Um, as you see, however, I'm afraid we, have, we, we continue to score rather low marks for gender balance down at this end of the room. Um, our first speaker tonight will be Mark Harper, the Minister for Political and Constitutional Reform. He's the Conservative MP for the Forest of Dean since 2005 and has been described as one of the rising stars of the coalition government. After that, we will hear from Patrick Dunleavy, who is Professor of Political Science here at the LSE and Chair of the Public Policy Group. Patrick has a long-standing interest in this subject and was a consultant to the Waking Commission on Lords Reform back in 1999. And our third speaker is Lord Richard Harries, a distinguished theologian who sat in the House of Lords as Bishop of Oxford between 1987 and 2006 and was a member of that Wakeham Commission. And on his retirement as Bishop, he was very unusually made a life peer and now sits as what is technically called a Lord Temporal on the cross benches. And finally, we have Tim Bale, who's Professor of Politics and European Studies at Sussex University. Amongst his many academic roles, he's the convener of the Political Studies Association Specialist Group on Conservatives and Conservatism. So you can perhaps guess where he might sit in this debate. I'm ashamed to say we failed to invite Tim to contribute to the book, but I'm delighted that he has forgiven us nonetheless <laughs> agreed to appear here tonight. After the speakers, we'll have time for around 45 minutes of questions and comments from the floor, um, winding up at about 7.45, and after that there'll be drinks in the foyer immediately outside this room and an opportunity for further informal discussion, so please stay on for that if you can. Well, Lord's Reform is perhaps not at the top of the media agenda, even in more normal times, and the proposals in the draft bill have not been very widely reported. So we have summarised those for you on the handout, which hopefully you found uh, on your seat along with the book. And I'm not going to attempt, obviously, to summarise all the arguments in the book tonight, which are very varied, but I will briefly mention three threads which I think run right through most of the contributions, really as a, a frame and an introduction for tonight's debate. And first there's the question of what the Lords is actually for, a matter which the draft bill does not address, and whether indeed we need a second chamber at all. 
Um, is the principal function of the Lords to act as a check on the power of the Commons and hence on the government, or is it mainly an expert revising chamber? And how will its ability to perform either of those functions be affected if its members are selected by popular election and are thus unavoidably nominees of the political parties? Second, there's the associated question of the relationship between the Lords and the Commons. Clause 2 of the draft bill, and I've abbreviated it here, tells us that nothing in this Act affects the primacy of the Commons or the conventions governing the relationship between the two Houses. Well, most of our writers are quite sceptical as, well, as to whether that can really be the reality, assuming that, that these proposals pass into law, since the Lord's current acceptance of a subordinate role is to a great extent the consequence of its own lack of democratic legitimacy. Although, as several of the contributors observe, there are degrees of legitimacy, and one may perhaps question the extent to which legislators can only stand for a single term, since what's proposed will be seen as possessing full democratic credentials. And finally, while there may be no consensus about the remedy, it's hard to find anyone who thinks that the current situation is at all satisfactory. There are now almost 800 active members of the House of Lords, most of them post-1999 political appointments. <coughs> and even if you allow for the quite substantial number who seldom turn up, there are now barely enough seats in the chamber, um, never mind the tea rooms. Um, however, at the same time, there is also quite widespread scepticism about the chances of these proposals actually resulting in legislation, both amongst our contributors and I would say more generally amongst uh, political scientists. Well, Mark Harper, I'm sure that's not a view that you share, so let me ask you to speak first. Great. Uh, thank you, Nat. Right. Well, I'm not going to uh, hopefully use up my entire five-minute span, and I don't propose to go through the details of the proposals here. They're in the book, very good book, which I got on Friday, um, so I suggest you read those, and we'll obviously be able to pick up some of the specific points people have um, about composition and about powers when we do the questions and answers, and that will probably be the most fruitful thing. Um, I just really wanted to say uh, three things, and I should say that before I start, uh, just to clarify, Hilary Benn uh, and the House of Murdoch, of course, he's been detained for perfectly honourable reasons, working uh, with uh, our benches to actually plan what the House of Commons is going to be doing on Wednesday, rather than anything else, just to put, put that straight. Um, and I think Hilary uh, and I are at one in terms of wanting to see reform um, of the House of Lords, and I'll set out in a minute where the main parties differ. Um, the three things I wanted to cover really was the issue in principle about why do we want change. Um, and it's very simple. Those who make the laws ought to be either at least wholly or mainly um, elected. It's not a more complex proposition than that. And you'll hear lots of people say, oh, the House of Lords, it doesn't really make laws. It just gives you advice and it doesn't really have much effect. Well, that really isn't true. It does make laws. It can block legislation. Uh, it can actually, if the legislation didn't start uh, in the House of Commons, it can actually prevent it happening uh, at all. Uh, if it started in the House of Commons, it can delay it, but it can make a significant difference. It isn't just a bunch of people giving advice to government. It is a legislature, one house of a legislature, and people that have political power ought to be elected. That's the simple proposition. There's then a whole range of detail about how should they be elected, whether they should be re-electable, um, and we'll no doubt go through some of those arguments when we do 
the questions that you will have. But that's the proposition. The second thing is amongst all three major political parties, there's an enormous degree of consensus. There were members of all three parties on the cross-party committee which the Deputy Prime Minister chaired. Um, there were two issues where uh, the government parties disagreed, differed from the Labour Party. One was around 80% elected or 100% elected. Labour said that they wanted to argue for 100% elected. Uh, the coalition parties preferred to put forward the 80% proposition for two reasons. One, because that's actually the more complex proposal to legislate for, and we wanted that in the legislation. The second thing was that we didn't want the best to be the enemy of the good. If we end up with an 80% elected House of Lords, that will be 80% more members than elected at the moment, uh, and that's an enormous step forward, even for those that would prefer a wholly elected House. Uh, and the Labour Party differed uh, with us on that. They wanted only to put forward a 100% proposition. The second area was a, a rather argument amongst anoraks about the electoral system. We all agreed on proportional representation. The coalition parties preferred STV. Um, I, in my party, have now got a rather an enviable re reputation in a party that's not known for uh, pushing electoral reform, being a, a great expert on all these various electoral systems, and most of my colleagues look at me quite strangely now, but we decided to put forward STV for some very sensible reasons. The Labour Party preferred to argue for a list system. Um, we, f we would find that perfectly acceptable. We think STV has some merits to create the sort of chamber uh, which will keep some of the things which I think people generally think the House of Lords does well, some of the things around independence um, and not being full of, of party appointees, or at least not people that follow a, a whip slavishly. Uh, the Labour Party preferred a list system. Other than that, there was a huge degree of consensus with our proposals. They are government proposals, but the Labour Party only differed with us on those two key areas. So there's a great deal of agreement amongst the parties. The real question is about how committed people are for reform. And I think it's worth just saying repeating the words that uh, David Miliband used in his contribution to our debate in the House of Commons when he counselled those members of his party who were tempted, because the Deputy Prime Minister's name is on these proposals, to oppose them for that reason. He suggested that that would be um, tactically tempting but strategically unwise. Um, and then the final thing to say is that these are draft proposals. There's a white paper and a draft bill. We are quite prepared to listen to detailed arguments about our proposals um, and we're the first government for four decades to put forward a draft bill but we are determined ultimately to act and introduce legislation and try and make this reform happen. So we've published the, the draft bill for scrutiny, there's a joint committee of both houses who are going to look at it uh, over the next coming months, um, meetings like this, other parliamentarians, other stakeholder groups, other people will feed in ideas. We will listen to all of those, uh, but then we do want to make progress, and the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister want to see elections uh, to the, the first tranche of elections to a reformed House of Lords uh, on the date of the next general election on the 7th of May 2015. So, very happy to listen and argue about the details, uh, but determined to act. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, Patrick, you have a PowerPoint presentation, so let's swap seats. Well, uh, yeah. Well, let me just start by saying it is a huge pleasure to 
be able to stand up in a public setting and say the government has done a tremendously good job of work in policy making. I haven't been able to say that in any other area <laughs> since <laughs> May 2010. It's, it's, it's just a real pleasure to see uh, a, a, a committee that has done a lot of very good work, that has you know, argued through the position, that still has some characteristic <coughs> British elite hang-ups of the kind that have led to the kind of Murdoch spiral of death at the moment. You know, so it's not perfect, but it's just hugely, hugely better than anybody else has done since the People's Budget of 1911, right? So this is a very major, I think it's a major feather in the cap for Nick Clegg and, and for Mark as the Conservative Minister responsible. And, and uh, you know, so I'm going to suggest that, that it's nearly there. It's not quite what I would regard as being a coherent, democratic, elected Senate. And let's call it a Senate. Let's stop calling it a House of Lords. Because the government has rightly said, let's separate out, you know, honour system away from the uh, legislature. So I'm going to call it a Senate for the rest of my presentation, just for clarity, okay? So there's just really three things that need to be done It's a really decent, thoroughgoing, reputable, liberal democratic reform that puts us a lot further towards being, instead of being an exceptional kind of pariah democracy with all kinds of weird unconstitutional setups, that we just make these three or four changes in, the, in, the, in what the government's proposing, and I think we could have a very uh, uh, great system which will deliver an excellent revising chamber uh, and uh, yet also have very strong democratic legitimacy. So the first uh, thing to think about is what voting system should be used to elect senators. And Mark mentioned that the uh, uh, Tory and Liberal Democrat uh, members opted <coughs> for a single transferable vote in large government standard regions, which we already use for electing MEPs, so that's perfectly fine. It's a proportional representation system, which will work very well in terms of uh, representing opinion in the country. But it is a numerical ordering system, so you have to vote one, two, three, four. And that was exactly the system that was uh, recently put to voters at the May 2010 referendum on the alternative vote. The alternative vote is the same thing as STD in single member constituencies. But, you know, I don't think it was very widely seen as a good thing. In fact, it was, you know, rejected by more than two to one. And I, I think it creates complications because the government uh, and the committee have also come up with saying let's hold the Lords or Senate election on the same day as the general election. Well people are voting using X voting for the House of Commons and then you're going to ask them to go one, two, three, four for the House of Lords and on the only occasion when this has happened which was the Scottish Parliament election uh, a couple of years back uh, there was a fairly catastrophic uh, uh, increase in voter confusion. And we really don't need to use a numerical preference system because there is a perfectly decent proportional representation system called <coughs> List PR, where the parties put up a list of candidates and voters choose the candidate of the lists that they most prefer. So it's, it's like the system we use for electing European Parliament members, but the difference is, and I think this is very important, that the voters would be able to select which of the people they wanted to be elected from each party. So that's really called an open list uh, system. And that would give you X voting for the Commons, 
uh, in the general election, and ex-voting on the same day for the House of Lords. I just think it's, it's pointless and it's risky to mix up different kinds of voting systems on the same day from the voters' point of view. Um, and uh, when, we, when we, we, in fact, uh, at LSE designed the, um, the London mayoral elections and the London assembly elections back in 1998, and they both use a single X voting, as it worked very well, there's been very little voter confusion. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing to think about is, well, you're going to elect these senators, a member of the reformed House of Lords, and how long are they going to sit for, and you know, can they be re-elected? The government is proposing, or the committee is proposing, um, that they should <coughs> be elected once, and once only, so they never ever go back to the voters, and they never have to account and the voters never get a chance to sort out the good sheep from the bad sheep amongst the people who got in the first time round. Now, there's only one other legislature in the world that uses this system. It's the lower house of the, well, it's the Mexican legislature. There's a sort of Mexican revolutionary gesture to have a single term where you can only get elected once and then you know you're out on your ear. And the problem is that from a corruption point of view, uh, you know, once you're elected and you know you never have to face the voters again, you can do whatever the hell you like and people will do it. We know that from the expenses scandal. We know that from the recent spate of convictions of peers. That, you know, if you give people an opportunity to be corrupt, they are going to jolly well be corrupt. So it's just a silly thing to do constitutionally to bring in a single term thing. And uh, it also means that. Uh, the government is proposing that you elect a third of the peers or senators at a time, uh, and there's no need to do that, because if you're using a proportional representation system, you'll have a balanced representation in the House if you elect in halves. You don't need to elect in thirds. It also means that uh, these peers who are elected just once, or in some cases are appointed, could be sitting from six to 19 years, which is, 19 years is a huge amount of time, 15 years will be quite regular for people to be sitting. That's way too long for people to be sitting without any form of uh, re-election. And you can easily tweak that. You can elect half the Senate at a time. You can uh, uh, allow for everybody to serve two terms, so that they have to be accountable to voters. And in the USA, this has worked very well in terms of uh, a person is elected, they want to be re-elected, so they behave well in the first term. But voters nonetheless get very clear signals in the first term who's a bad egg and who's a good egg, and they can choose and search and dump, dump the corrupt ones or the more self-interested ones. Uh, and if, they, if the person does actually be self-interested but they get elected by dissimulating, at least they're only there for a shorter time, not for a whole 15 years. So that would mean that people would be there from 6 to 13 years, not very different from the government's proposal. Just to mention that the election is taking place on general election day, and uh, actually we have a varied multi-party system in England now. We have parties on the right of the Conservatives, and of course we have the Greens, uh, none of whom have ever been elected at Westminster. There's a good chance that some of these parties might be elected for the Senate, which is probably a very good thing. It's ridiculous, for example, that at successive European Parliament elections, 25% of people in the UK have voted for uh, withdrawal from Europe, and yet there's hardly any MPs in Westminster who believe in withdrawal from Europe. 
that's the sort of level of unrepresentedness you want to get rid of. I think the, the, the new Senate could help do that. And again, in Scotland, we've got a, a multi-party system. Now, by having the, general, the election on general election day, it's actually going to favour the top three parties, Labour, the Tories, and the Liberal Democrats. That's why they've proposed it. It's, it's still, because it's a PR system, it's still going to be a, 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 a nice way of broadening out the representation of viewpoints in, in Britain, which is badly needed. And uh, you can see the difference between the, the... All you need to do is look here and see that the, that the green elections, which are proportional representation elections in various parts of the country, uh, compared to the red elections, which are general elections, you can see that, on the whole, more parties uh, get elected in PR elections. <coughs> so the final thing is the real big thing. Should you uh, elect 80% of the House and appoint 20%, or should you elect 100%? And it just seems to me axiomatic <coughs> on the grounds that Mark mentioned that anybody who's legislating on your behalf should be accountable to you. Nobody should be legislating without being elected, and nobody should legislate without being accountable. And that's a fundamental democratic principle. It's great that we're almost there. Let's just go the whole hog. And, and make sure that we get to a final solution this time for uh, an elected <coughs> upper chamber. From the beginning, that should be easy. Well, th thank you very much, John. Our second two speakers have, shall we say, a rather lesser enthusiasm for the principle of election. So let's um, turn now to Lord Harris. Good evening, everybody. I was a member of the Royal Commission on the Reform of the House of Lords. When our report came out in the year 2000, it did not, at that time, get the attention it deserved for a simple reason. We proposed a hybrid house, that is, a mixture of elected and appointed members. And the one thing that united almost everybody else at that time was that they did not want a hybrid house. They either wanted a fully elected house or a fully appointed house. And therefore, the radical proposals of the Wakem Commission did not get taken with the seriousness that they deserved. We believed, and I believe still, in radical reform. First of all, the most radical reform of, of all, which is to separate the peerage an, as an honour from membership of the second chamber. It may be that some people in the second chamber, let's call it a senate, would be made a lord as an honour, but that would be, as it were, totally irrelevant to the main uh, purpose uh, of the senate. Secondly, do away with membership for life, which is a fact of the present House of Lords so that people would have long terms of office, uh, 15 years. We actually thought, unlike the draft bill, there should be the possibility of appointment for a further term. For instance, uh, supposing somebody was either elected or appointed uh, at, at the age of 30 and they'd done their 15 years, well, they'd only be uh, whatever it was, you know, 45, they'd still have a lot to offer. So we thought there should be a possibility of a person coming back. Not, it should not be taken for granted they would have to have actually prove themselves. 
Um, then uh, there was also, uh, we also thought, and, and, and this is also in the draft bill, uh, that there should be an independent statutory appointments commission. There is one at the moment. Uh, Crossbench peers, independent crossbench peers like myself, are on the whole appointed by this independent statutory commission. However, we thought of a wider role for it. The role of the statutory commission would also try to ensure that there would be a gender balance in the House, an ethnic balance, and a balance which represented <coughs> the uh, results of the previous uh, election. We also thought that the number of bishops in the House of Lords should be reduced conventions with its reduced size and there should be at least in principle however difficult to achieve in practice some representatives official representatives of other faiths now one very significant difference between our proposals uh, in the royal commission and the present proposals of the draft bill is uh, the size we thought that a good size for a senate would be about 550 the draft a bill proposes, together with the 12 bishops, a house of 312. The present house, of course, is absurdly large. It needs to be drastically reduced. But we thought that 300 or that amount would be rather too small. For instance, if you just take the independent crossbench peers, the great strength of the independent crossbench peers at the moment, you have representatives of all different professions, walks of life, nurses, social workers, distinguished scientists, ex-senior policemen, ex-armed forces. There's a wide range of expertise that the House of Lords can, can draw on, and I think that ex range of expertise needs to be rather larger than the draft bill uh, envisages. Then, again, this is a pretty fundamental uh, difference with the proposal in the draft bill. We believe that people should receive uh, a per diem allowance which is in fact what House of Lords get at, uh, at, at the moment other, under the new proposals uh, which came in last year. The old expensive system was rightly abolished because it was so totally ambiguous. People get now a modest per diem uh, uh, allowance. Of course the draft bill proposes a house of people who are full time and on full salary, full pension arrangements, presumably uh, money for full staff. In other words, they propose a very expensive house uh, along the lines of the House of, of Commons. You might or might not think that expense is a, uh, a consideration. Now this leads on to the really fundamental difference, of course, between the proposals in the draft bill and the Royal Commission. Uh, the draft bill proposes 80% elected and 20% appointed. The Royal Commission proposed the possibility of 65 members or 87 members or 197 members being elected in a, a total house of about 550. Obviously a much smaller percentage even if and when the full total of 197 had been uh, uh, achieved. What is interesting, and we were talking about this just before, is that when the Royal Commission first began, we were about evenly divided between those who proposed a fully elected House and those who appointed, wanted a fully appointed House. By the end, uh, we had come uh, to uh, an, an agreement, a mixture of a House, a hybrid House, along these, along these lines. Although personally, at the beginning, I wanted a totally appointed House, I changed my mind not, I have to say, for reasons of democratic legitimacy. There are all kinds of different legitimacy. 
Judges are not elected, prime ministers are not elected, members of the cabinet are not elected, but they have a proper legitimacy. And there can be a proper legitimacy with a revising chamber, provided, of course, the House of Commons as the fully elected chamber is always paramount, which it is at the moment, and it would be under the proposals of the Royal Commission. I wanted a percentage elected because I felt this would enable a wider range of people to come into the House of Lords. It might allow, for instance, a person who had been an outstanding politician, but who was very unpopular with their uh, leadership of their party to, cut, to come in. So I support a, an elected element, but I, not as high as the one proposed in the draft bill. And the reason why uh, I wanted uh, a, an appointed, a strong appointed an element uh, in addition to the independent crossbench peers, because many the people who make the most valuable contribution in the House of Lords at the moment are people with long political experience. Ex-cabinet ministers, for example, or members of the House of Commons. Not all of them are equally useful. But there's a huge amount of political expertise there. And it seems to me that it would be a tragedy for the political life of the country if this was all lost. At the moment, MPs perhaps uh, who really wouldn't be worth it, they're right, they can be given an honour, they can be made a lord, but they wouldn't put, be put into the, into the revising chamber, the, the, the Senate. So uh, I think something huge would be lost uh, if we didn't have these experienced politicians in the, in the House of Lords. So uh, then the Wakeham Commission is very radical. Personally, I would like to see radical changes taking place incrementally, doing away with the connection with the peerage, doing away with life membership, and bringing these radical changes in first and then finally we can get down to the balance of the elected and, and the appointed where uh, at the moment radical change is being held up because there's so much disagreement about the proportion of the elected and the appointed. Thank you. Thank you very much. And finally, Tim Bale. Stand over there. I don't have a PowerPoint, but uh, I'm slightly blinded by the light, so uh, if I can uh, just... Um, okay, we're here to launch... Um, a book called The End of the Peer Show, and I, I found myself wondering when I was thinking about this talk whether it could be an accident that you've invited an academic from Brighton uh, to talk about that particular subject, because for those of you who don't know it, we have two peers in Brighton. One is uh, a very colourful uh, peer, uh, very uh, confident um, of uh, it being the centre of attention. The other one is uh, sort of burnt out Hulk, washed up, <laughs> which no one quite knows what to do with. Um, do we just kind of leave it as it is, or do we spend millions of pounds on doing it up uh, and rescuing and modernising it? Now obviously I, uh, I don't want to make some kind of forced analogy there, uh, or do I? But uh, I should say I do come at this question um, as a Conservative, not necessarily uh, a big C Conservative, but certainly uh, a small C Conservative. Um, and if, you, if you're looking for a, a good definition of a, a small C Conservative, can I recommend a, a book, not by me, um, but by someone called Kieran O'Hara, uh, just been published on um, Conservatism, which I think is, is very useful, actually, and teaches us that you don't necessarily need to be a, a big C Conservative to be a small C Conservative, and, and vice versa. Um, I'd also recommend, uh, if you're into doing some reading, 
on uh, conservative arguments, and you will hear them increasingly in this debate, um, are Hirschman's book called The Rhetoric of Reaction. And what Hirschman, who's an economist or was an economist, says is there are basically three conservative arguments to any uh, reform suggestions. Uh, the first one is the futility thesis. In other words, whatever it is that the reformers are planning to do will make absolutely no difference to the situation in the end. The second is the perversity thesis. Not as interesting as it sounds. Uh, all it means is that whatever you do will in fact make the situation worse. And then the third classic argument of the conservative is the jeopardy argument. In other words, whatever you do will endanger the, the benefits that history, if you like, has already delivered us. Now, all of those, I would submit, can be uh, brought in to play when arguing against uh, these reforms. Um, for example, just to give one instance, uh, a directly elected chamber may rival the House of Commons. It may then cause some kind of US-style gridlock. There you have perversity, okay? It's counterproductive. Personally, I don't actually believe in that one myself because there are plenty of bicameral uh, countries uh, all over the world that seem to be able to cope with two elected chambers. And I should say, if you're interested in um, this particular subject and you, you haven't seen this yet, I'm not an author of this, again, so I'm recommending someone else's work here. The Political Studies Association, of which Patrick is an august member, um, has produced this 90-odd uh, page briefing on the House of Lords reform, uh, and it's by Alan Rennick at Reading University, and what Alan basically does is take you through the proposals as they are and tries to evaluate them on certain uh, select criteria. He also gives you lots of evidence uh, from abroad as well, so if, if you're interested in this subject, it's a really, really good one to uh, have a look at. But back to the argument that I'm trying to make. I, I guess I'm trying to argue as well, not on the merits of uh, the reform, but on the politics of the reform. Now, the fact is that those politics don't necessarily stink, but they do suggest, to me anyway, that reform, or reform, at least as it's envisaged in this white paper, simply isn't going to happen, which I guess is one version, if you like, of the futility thesis. So what do I mean by that? Well, for one thing, there appears to be no great public appetite for these reforms beyond, and I apologise for using this kind of populist um, uh, cliché, but it's one that's going to be used by the opponents of reform, uh, the, the chattering classes, if you like. Uh, secondly, there is no clear definition, I think, of what the practical problem, as opposed to the conceptual problem, that this reform um, is going to solve. In other words, what is the question to which this reform and this particular reform is the answer beyond obviously the, the democratic um, problem, beyond the representative problem. Thirdly, uh, there seems to be no uh, clear agreement, no clear consensus on the part of those who are proposing the reform. I, I take what you said about acting and, and that being very, very important, but even within the white paper, and of course it's a white paper, it's not legislation yet, there is an awful lot of sort of slippage and disagreement and, and, and gaps between um, those who are keen on the idea. And then fourthly, uh, MPs from the biggest party 
in the coalition are fairly lukewarm or even in some cases a little bit hostile to uh, the uh, reforms themselves. And certainly the conservative grassroots would seem um, not to be particularly interested in uh, the idea either. Fifthly, those directly affected, in other words, their lordships themselves, seem to me anyway, and according to opinion polls, uh, to be generally opposed to uh, the idea uh, of reform as put in the white paper. And that creates a kind of asymmetry of interests. In other words, you have a vociferous minority with their interests to protect versus uh, a large, fairly apathetic, fairly uninterested majority. In those situations, and the most obvious one, for example, is agricultural policy. This is one we always quote. Um, in those situations, it's very often the vociferous minority who, who carry the day. Um, and I think this, this might well happen this time again. The, the other point on that particular question is that those who are opposed to these reforms are also offering um, what would seem to be a kind of sensible, um, possibly quite easily implementable series of tweaks um, to the chamber that may well um, convince some people that that's all that needs to be done. In other words, well, some of them we heard from, from Richard, but voluntary retirement, for example, the kind of phasing out of hereditaries as they, um, as they pass away, um, small reduction in numbers, um, perhaps a more independent uh, appointments process. So these are all things that the opponents of reform can offer as, as compromises that may seem quite sensible um, to, to the disinterested or the uninterested majority. And then finally, if we look at uh, the history, previous attempts to reform the House of Lords have ended in failure, and even, perhaps more recently, to some extent, in farce, um, despite front-bench agreement. In other words, you can have front-bench agreement, as we had, for example, in the 1960s, and yet that didn't make any difference. In the end, it's Parliament, rather than necessarily the parties, um, that decide this. Uh, and I, uh, I suspect, I rather suspect that that might well happen again. What I'd like someone to explain to me, and maybe, and maybe Patrick will, and, and, and maybe the minister will as well, is what is it about you know, what Marxists used to call the present conjuncture that makes things different this time around? I mean, I'm open to persuasion, but what is it that's different in 2011? What, what are the conditions in 2011 um, that uh, make them so very, very different from the earlier 2000s or 1960s or whatever. The only upside, it seems to me, that the reformers have got is that they won't have to put this to a referendum. So they're not going to have to persuade the disinterested majority um, that uh, this should go through. That's the, the upside, if you like. Um, and presumably the government will not be stupid enough to offer MPs um, a sort of series of multiple options that they can then vote on, which was one of the big mistakes last time around. So presumably they, they, they won't do that. Um, so, well, personally, as has become, I expect, fairly obvious, the, the argument generally is kind of, if, if it ain't broke, um, don't fix it. Though I must say, I do have sympathy with... Um, um, Patrick's point, point of view that if you are going to go for it then you know, go the whole hog do not go for the, for the halfway house it doesn't seem to me to, um, to make any sense now. 
I realise now that I've kind of used up my allotted time. I've probably used up my allowance of um, uh, populist cliches as well. Um, but if I can be allowed just to kind of move off the moral low ground that I've firmly planted myself in um, over the last five minutes, I would say that um, politics in a democracy is supposed to be about, um, to some extent, uh, actually the priorities of voters and the needs of society. And I'm not sure at the present moment, in the present conjuncture, that House of Lords reform um, really is a priority. It will take up time. It will therefore impose an opportunity cost. And I think that cost um, is, to some extent, a moral and political issue as well as simply a practical one. Okay. Well, thanks very much, um, Tim. We've, we've, as often as the case in these events, run a bit over time, so we've got about 35 minutes left. Um, what I suggest we do is to take questions or indeed comments from um, the audience, and we'll do that in groups of three or four. Um, put them back to the speakers and no doubt they'll also take the opportunity to comment on some of each other's points at the same time. So they'd like to put their hand up to start us off at the back. Could you let the microphone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> microphone off on on please. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Talk to it. Talk to it. Yeah? All right. Um, there we go. Yeah. Um, so my question is, how do you see the role of the House of Lords changing as this reform goes forward? So how is the, the, the possible increase in political legitimacy going to impact the role that it plays in the political system? Thank you. Um, yes, near where the microphone is. Hi. Thank you. Um, just as a political scientist as an, and as an American, it, it's sort of off of that point, which is who's asking for a House of Lords that makes more decisions or has more power? Because even if you look at the past year, students marching in the streets, House of Lords says, we're not going to delay this bill. The Commons has spoken. So from what quarters, and, and in particular, it interests me as, as you know, why the Labour Party is perhaps looking for more power, because that would seem to stifle the ability to make policy. So from what quarters do you see this pressure for more reform or a more active House of Lords? Um, yes, sir, down the front here. Uh, hi, yeah, just speaking as someone who kind of works between government, private sector and third sector, I'm just wondering, at the moment it seems that the House of Lords has developed into a house where experts are appointed and they can inform 
policy and the way the society's developed. And I just think when you introduce an elected chamber, does that not just attract kind of careerists and individuals who, who want to get elected? And I just wonder, how do you, how do you balance that per potential uh, dilemma? Let's, let's stop there. So um, three points really coming out of that. Um, how will elected lords be different? Um, will it be able to retain its special expertise? And is there any popular demand for the, the lords to be a more proactive body than it is at the moment? Patrick, why don't you start that off? Okay, well, that's very simple. I think the, the role of the lords will, will, will grow. Uh, as soon as there are elected members, uh, its legitimacy will rise and it, it will become more active. Uh, you, you will hear a lot of stuff about how the current House of Lords is active and sometimes changes government policy, but in fact, it very rarely changes conservative government policy. Every now and again, it changes a few Labour government policies, but uh, it's been a pretty minimal thing, and uh, a huge proportion of the existing uh, Lords think so little of it, they, ne they never show up, and they never even vote, some of them. Uh, so, you know... Uh, I, I think a smaller chamber, one of the things I didn't say is that I think the government's proposal is still too, too big, uh, 312, and uh, a smaller chamber, probably about 200 is all you need to do elections in halves and have a good PR uh, outcome. And that would give you a, a, a small group of people who are there for a, a decent amount of time um, and who would, I think, still be, tend to be experts because that, those would be the kind of people who would, who would do well in the Lord's elections. Uh, it's not uh, a route to careerism or you know ministerial futures or anything like that. And in, in other in other liberal democracies like Australia, the Senate is, is 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 a decent chamber and does a very good revising role. So I would expect that the Lords would get uh, it would gradually become as it would gradually become peopled with elected people. It would gradually become more legitimate, more independent. It would do a better and more regular job of improving our policy making. Britain is one of the largest undevolved, unsplit up uh, units of policy making in the world. I mean apart from <coughs> Japan we have England which is governed at the moment, 55 million people governed all at one go. You know, you have to go to a sort of province of China to find somewhere as big as that. Most liberal democracies have got a regional system, they're more federal, they're more split up. So I think that this would give us a little bit more balance and it would give us the kind of balance which I think the, the, the government committee has, has uh, uh, been seeking. The question of who's asking for change, well, I mentioned we've been, we've been discussing this since 1911. And even if you're an arch-conservative like Tim, you know, a hundred years ought to be enough, really. <laughs> it ought to be enough. Thank you. Lord Harris. Um, I believe that the present powers of the House of Lords are just right. The job of the House of Lords is to scrutinize legislation uh, and uh, where it needs changing to revise it and send it back to the Commons to think again. And I believe that the powers should remain as they are. I think that if it was elected, certainly the House of Lords would want to flex its muscles more. The best speech in the House of Lords recently uh, on this subject in favour of an elected House was by Penny Ashdown, and he made no sympathy. Uh, 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 he didn't hide the fact at all. He was looking for a very, very much more strengthened House of Lords, greater powers. Well, I, I wonder whether House of Commons members are going to really welcome that uh, strengthened role. 
if it was fully elected. Um, on the question of expertise, as I've said before, I won't repeat it at length, it seems to me the great, one of the great values of the present House of Lords, there is a huge range of expertise there. Uh, and the simple fact of the matter is people with that expertise in the House of Lords at the moment would not stand for elections uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in the future. Uh, as far as the question of who's asking uh, for it, uh, I'm afraid I'm a bit cynical about these uh, par uh, party manifestos because uh, certainly it's very far from apparent in the House of Lords that the Conservative Party uh, wants a fully elected House. It seems to me obvious that in the House of Lords, Conservative members, whatever they may, may say, uh, actually through their whole body language and their tone of voice, they distance themselves from it. A fair number of the most significant Liberal Democrat Lords in the House of Lords don't believe in it either, nor do a huge number of uh, Labour House of Lords people. So I wonder where this change is coming. I suspect there'll begin to be a sea change in the House of Commons too, where, when they really look at the uh, uh, issue f further and it comes a, a little bit nearer if it ever does. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree <coughs> with um, what the previous speakers have said. I mean, I don't think there's much point in reform unless you are going to get a different kind um, of house that is going to um, cause governments um, to think again more often, is going to press for things like evidence-based um, policy making. So, so you know, if there were to be a change, then presumably there would be a change in in, in function or at least um, powers. Um, in terms of you know where the demand for reform is coming from, well, obviously, given what I've said, I I, I don't think that there is a great deal um, of demand from the the, the electorate. Um, obviously, there is a demand from one partner in the coalition. I mean, we are looking at uh, a junior partner that desperately needs kind of achievements that it can chalk up and take back to its um, core voters in as much as it has got any core voters uh, anymore. Um, and I, I think that's where, where it's, it's coming from. In terms of, um, you know, would the elected chamber attract careerists? Um, well, I, mean, I think experts could be careerists uh, uh, as well, uh, I'd have to say. Um, you could do something about this, as <coughs> other legislatures do, and actually talk about age limits, um, or rather not limits, but age flaws. So in other words, you know, people can't get elected um, to the chamber until they are um, over 30 or over 40. I think it's normally kind of, you know, 30 or something like that. So that's, that's one possibility, although I don't see that really being a runner, but that's, that's one thing you can do. Um, let me do them in a slightly different order. The, um, the American guy at the back who said, um, where's the pressure coming from? Well, the first thing is it was actually a manifesto commitment of all three parties. Um, I'm not surprised that members of the House of Lords of all parties are not hugely in favour of it. I mean, it's amazing there's a, there's a joke, I think, Richard, that um, however radical you are, there's usually a wager between how long your radicalism lasts uh, uh, after you've sat on the red benches and surprisingly when you become appointed to something for life it's very attractive it's a very nice club and despite what Richard said the per diem amount per day which he described as modest is actually £300 and actually if you turn up every single day of the session you can pull in more money as a member of the House of Lords because it's not taxable than you can being a elected member of the House of Commons and I don't think most of certainly most of my constituents would think uh, pulling in more than £60,000 a year wasn't a modest per diem sum at all um, there's also a 
half day allowance, and so some yeah. people get fat. But the point is, if you turn up every day, the house is sitting, which is not, for, you know, which is 190 days a year. You can pull in over 60k a year. Most people wouldn't consider that modest. So you know, let's not get away with the idea that there's a lot of people there with a lot of self-interest, which, which is where I do agree with Tim. Um, that it, it's going to be a challenge. But the House of Commons, though, if all three major parties support this, even though there will be people in all of our parties who don't support it, and the House of Commons, the elected House, passes legislation with a majority of 200 or 300, the House of Lords has just spent ages in its debate telling us all they never block things and they don't stand in the way and they just give us advice, it would be rather extraordinary if they then tried to block it, and I think we would be perfectly within our rights then to use the tools at our disposal to insist on it taking uh, shape. Um, in terms of the issue about expertise, it is true there are some experts in the House of Lords. You can wildly overstate this though. There are 800 odd members, there are 200 crossbenchers, the, the rest of them are party political appointees. Now that doesn't mean they don't have expertise, but they're no different qualitatively from members of the House of Commons. Um, Crossbenchers, some are active experts, people who are current. An awful lot of them, I'm afraid, are very ex. Um, you know, if you were the Chief of the Defence Staff 20 years ago, you knew an awful lot about defence policy 20 years ago. I have to say I'd rather have some current people coming to give me evidence rather than someone who did the job 20 years ago. The final point is on, on the expertise. The House of Commons, I know this isn't fashionable to say, actually has a lot of talented people with expertise. Um, there was an example given in the House of Lords about health debate where they had a consultant and a chairman of a trust and various other marvellous people. Well, in the House of Commons, we've got people who were general practitioners, uh, hospital consultants, people who've run successful businesses and created multi-million pound enterprises themselves. Um, yes, they've probably chosen to terminate those careers a little bit earlier and come into the House of Commons a little bit earlier than in the House of Lords. But the idea that we're all, you know, talentless party hacks, I'm afraid, isn't true. And I'm going to stand up and say that even if nobody else does. Um, the final point about the role, um, the role of the House of Lords should remain scrutiny and revision. Um, and it is inevitable that the exact relationship with the houses between the two houses of parliament will change uh, if one of them, if, if the second house is elected. But I don't think that means the House of Commons doesn't stay the primary chamber with ultimately the ability through the Parliament Act to get its own way. But the relationship will change. The relationship's changed since the 1999 Parliament Act that removed the hereditaries. The House of Lords has felt more able to flex its muscles. The relationship's changed quite a lot. Uh, and I, I think Richard will probably support me here, since last year, since the coalition government was formed, and there's a different dynamic. Final point about pressure for reform. It's perfectly true, the general public, this is not an issue which sends them to the barricades yet, but you wait and see, if nothing happens this Parliament, and if there were a future, well there will be changes of government in the future, every single government will appoint new peers to try and move the balance slightly in the direction. When the House of Lords has got 1,200 people in it, there'll be pressure for reform. Thank you very much. Let's take three more questions. In the middle, in the blue, pull over. Um, my question is kind of related to the jeopardy argument, which was brought up by Professor Bale, although slightly different angle on it. There's very little mention, except in the very first speech, of what the effects on the actual purpose and output of the House would be from these reforms. And I was disappointed to see Mark Harper dismiss it in quite an offhand way that there'll be a change in the dynamic, but very little has actually spoken about it. I mean, we see a lot of upper houses in Europe and abroad where the upper house 
elected just mirrors the lower house and that they can actually do very little then other than become a rubber stamp, which doesn't seem to be discussed. And that given the <coughs> likelihood of more hung parliaments, that the upper house here would actually end up for the very first time, even with an 80% elected proportion, with uh, overall majority for the government parties, which has never happened before in the House of Lords. And when asked why there's so little discussion of things like that happening, and is it a fixation on form rather than purpose? Mm. Thank you very much. Um, down the front in the grey T-shirt. I was wondering what's the main reason why not to have an unlimited amount of times you'd have to be re-elected, because wouldn't that make sure that you always have to be doing your job correctly, otherwise you just, you're out. So why have that limit of just one time? Madam, fine. This question is mainly addressed at Professor Lord Harvest. You talked about creating a microcosm of society within the House of Lords, and um, I just wanted to say, I was wondering how would that be plausible, because um, the House of Commons is currently elected, and it's predominantly white and male, so I'd want to see how would the elections in the House of Lords be different. Thanks very much. And, and picking up something Mark um, said a minute ago, throwing a question of my own, um, and it's something that Hilary Benn mentions in his piece in the book, are these proposals sufficiently important in their constitutional effect that we should have a referendum about them, as we did about the, the, the possible change in the voting system? Um, but three questions from, from the floor. Um, will the effect of an elected House just be to make it into a rubber stamp for, for whatever the government does in the Commons? Um, why should the members be limited to one term? And do these proposals do anything to get a balance of membership which is more reflective of society? Um, Two, why don't you start with that? Uh, well, I, I won't address all of them. I mean, I think if we move towards um, an elected House based on particularly the, the form of proportional representation that um, Pat Dunleavy was talking about, then I, I think um, there is a likelihood that we get more women. I mean, it does seem to be the case that there is a correlation between proportional representation and the number of women um, in, in the legislature. So almost you know, by accident or a kind of spillover effect, as it were, uh, we might get more women. But I mean, there is no way, I think, that um, making the House of Lords um, an elected chamber will necessarily make it any more representative, substantively anyway. I mean, I, I think you've got a point there. Um, to the point uh, about the upper house having um, a government majority for the first time and this making a big difference, I mean, I, I think, again, um, Patch is quite right to say that, that it's quite rare, um, particularly for conservative-led governments or conservative governments, to, to actually find them uh, really losing major pieces of legislation. I mean, there, there are the odd... Um, uh, things that they they have to compromise on, but but normally um, th that the the government will get its way. Um, so I'm not sure that that's such a big change in terms of should we have a referendum on it. Um, well, of course, as someone who's rather sceptical about the reforms, I suggest we should have because it's almost certain that it would be um, a no vote. Mark, oh. let me deal with the question about um, all the all the mirror image question from the gentleman in the middle and about how it would change. No, I mean, 
If you read through the white paper and the, and the draft bill, a lot of the decisions that we took, uh, in the, both in the Joint Committee and then when we were drafting the, the legislation, was to avoid exactly what you suggested. There's absolutely no point, and there's no desire to create a mirror image of the House of Commons, because th there would be no point. You'd either have um, a, a House that didn't do anything different, or one that just blocked everything you wanted to do. So, and this is the answer to the, the, the question as well about why not allowing people to, to run for re-election. Um, it's to try and create difference. So by having people who have to stand and therefore are legitimate, but we recognise that they're going to be uh, not as accountable as members of parliament because they're not going to get re-elected, you enable them to be independent. The problem is as soon as you have to get re-elected, you immediately give your party control over you because you have to be reselected as a candidate um, and you have to worry about getting re-elected so you have to slavishly you want people to worry about what voters think but you don't necessarily you want them to be braver um, and a lot of the proposals we've come up with are enabling the House of Lords, a reformed House of Lords, to be different, to keep what's good about the existing House of Lords, but to make it more um, legitimate. Uh, that's the reason why we have term limits, uh, why we don't let people stand for re-election, why we have STV, why we prefer STV. If you have an open list, if there's a tick box, I, I don't think Patrick was suggesting it, if there's a tick box for a party, the evidence is 95% of the voters will tick the box for the party. As soon as the party decides the order of the list, Right, party leaderships control who gets into the upper house. The STV system means that actually voters have a lot more control over who gets elected, so you get more independent people, and you actually probably have a realistic chance of some independents winning. Um, and, and just to correct one point, current House of Lords, the government does not have a majority. The two government parties together, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, have 40% only of the votes in the House of Lords, which is why we keep being defeated. Um, and actually that's partly why again we've gone for PR, because we don't want, in normal circumstances, the government to have a majority in the upper house. It's good that it doesn't. My own view as a Conservative is I actually like a constitutional balance where we keep first past the post for the Commons, where I think the balance should be towards electing a government which most of the time will be a single party one that if you screw up you can be thrown out but I actually think in the House of Lords for the different job that it's doing PR is better to have a wider range of views to enable that different perspective. Um, final question on the diversity issue, there is some evidence that you get a more diverse set of people um, <clears throat> the biggest chance that we'll have is the fact that we'll be starting off with a clean slate so when we elect the first tranche of people you won't have a hundred incumbents uh, that you're kind of starting off with and it does give the parties a real opportunity to look more broadly um, at the sort of people that might be prepared to do the job and hopefully end up with the House of Lords more representative. We have made some strides in the House of Commons, it is more representative than it was uh, amongst all parties both from a gender perspective, from an ethnic minority perspective and also with more uh, disabled members of Parliament uh, and that's something we want to continue pushing um, in that direction. Patrick. Yes, well, I agree with uh, almost everything that Mark said, which is a very rare thing again for me. Um, I don't know who's most worried, Patrick. No, 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 it's probably you should be more worried. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, uh, it's certainly true that whenever parties have to put up a list of candidates, the pressure of, of you know, having <coughs> to have a list uh, generally means that you get a much greater represent much greater balancing of male and female candidates than you get through when you have one candidate being selected at a time in the in the normal House of Commons way. So I think whether it's STV or uh, a list system, you will see a, a much better gender balance. 
in the uh, elected Senate than you get in the House of Commons. And I think it's what the latest estimate is going to take, 350 years for the Conservative Party to get gender balance and its candidates in the House of Commons and the current rate of progress. So there has been progress, but it's very, very slow. Uh, and uh, I think the situation is even worse in respect of... Um, uh, uh, ethnic minority representation and I do think that uh, if you look at let's say the Greater London Assembly which is a PR elected assembly that's that's a much better uh, track record um, I, I, I agree with Mark that there's no chance whatsoever that uh, you know you're going to get uh, government majorities in the two houses because under the government scheme the, uh, the, house, the upper house is going to be elected a third, a third, a third over a period of, of three general elections. So you'd have to have some massive great uh, majority um, to, uh, and a real majority, not just a sort of fake Margaret Thatcher 42% majority or a Tony Blair 42% majority. Or even a Tony Blair 36% majority. Or even a, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, even a, yes, yes. So uh, I think the, the likelihood that there would be any kind of permanent government or, or uh, majority in the, in the Lords is, re is very, very low indeed if you are electing the House even in halves. And I, that's why I don't agree with the elect people for one mega term of, you know, 15 years. Uh, I think that's really, the only rationale for that is to elect the House in thirds, and there's no need to elect the House in thirds if you're using a proportional system. So there's, there's you know, I would take a small bet of about £10,000 with you that uh, your fear is groundless. Um, in answer to the question about how representative the House of Lords is, um, the House of Commons is, I think, much more representative now. In, in recent years, it's been much more representative uh, than it was, say, 20 years ago. But 20 years ago, the House of Lords was much more representative than the House of, of Commons. Uh, one of the things that first struck me when I went in there as Bishop of Oxford, what a key role women played in, in the House of Lords uh, and how much more ethnically diverse it was. Than the, than the Commons. For instance, today we've just elected a new woman speaker. The previous leader of the House of Lords was a woman. The leader of the House of Lords before that was a woman. Um, so I think that the House of Lords probably today is still has greater diversity than the House of Commons. Under my proposals, or the proposals rather of the Royal Commission, one of the jobs of the Independent Appointments Commission would be to ensure that there was a gender balance and an ethnic balance. So although the p p nominations would be put forward by political parties for the political appointments, the, st the Appointments Commission would insist that there was a gender balance and an ethnic b balance there. So that's, uh, that's how that would be met. Uh, in relation to the first question, it was a very, very good question, if I might say so, but I feel other members of the panel are much better qualified to answer that than I, I am, and they've already answered it in part. Thank you. Can, can I just come, come in with yes. a very quick about representation? I mean, I, if I was being cheeky, I'd say that um, women always find it easier to persuade men to give them leadership positions in institutions that don't actually matter that much. Uh, we may find that if the House of Lords becomes 
um, fully elected and becomes more powerful, then perhaps we're going to see men do what they normally do in those situations and begin to take the, uh, the power for, for themselves. The other thing I would say, I mean, I, I'm not sure I do buy Richard's point about the House of Lords being more representative um, than, than the House of Commons. Uh, and also, I think we are unduly fixated on the representation of women and ethnic minorities over the representation of people from all social classes. And I mean, that, that's one serious problem that this country has got in its lower house, and I, I can't really foresee any change um, that's going to be made there or in the Senate that will do anything about that. That, for me, is now the, the, the most serious problem we have and one of the reasons and it's one of the sort of unspoken reasons why there is such a huge disconnect I suspect between most ordinary people and the people who claim to represent them because they look and sound nothing like them Thank you. Final round of questions sir in the second row um, is, it, is, this on? Yeah. is it a foregone conclusion do you think that, that by having an elected House of Lords that its importance is going to increase. Uh, I say this because there are many elected uh, bodies um, that are entirely um, powerless. Um, take the GLA, for example, or the European Parliament. You know, um, People get elected there, um, but it doesn't necessarily make them uh, more influential. Is, is it possible that the House of Lords could be elected and at the same time still sort of maintain its revising role. Sure. So. I'll shout that back a bit louder. I'd like to come back to the 100 against 80-20 idea, because I think I, I rather agree that if we're going for 100%, go for it immediately. What sticks in the throat slightly about the 80-20 still is 20% just have a subject to someone else's control. So, have you thought about having a 100% uh, voting, but reserving 20% for particular categories of specialisation, which would be clearly marked out and defined? Thank you. So, I was very pleased to hear Tim Bell raise the question of social class. I mean, our House of Commons is deeply unrepresentative in terms of social class, and it's deeply unrepresentative proportionately between all the political parties and political views. It's got a dreadful election system, which urgently needs reform. And if we're not going to reform it, and I'm surprised that no one has suggested that we might, then at least that does mean the House of Lords will be proportionally elected, must have some plans to check the executive. Yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's the far top, top corner, and then I think we'll call it a day after that. Hi, I just wanted to pose a question to Mark, which Tim raised in his presentation. That's what is the practical problem that you're trying to solve here? I mean, the only arguments I've heard for is, uh, is democratic legitimacy. Now surely that democracy is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. I just think you risk tampering with a body that on the, by and large works at the moment, albeit it probably needs a few tweaks, uh, but why, why risk such a massive change for you know, what is a point of semantics? Thank you. So f f four questions. Um, will, will an elected upper house um, actually assume a greater importance? 
um, a modified proposal to have a 100% elected um, House, but 20% of it reserved for various categories and specialisations. Um, general point about the unrepresentative nature of the Commons, and the final point, um, it takes us back to the very beginning. What, what, is it that, what is the problem that we are here trying to solve? Uh, Lord Harris. Well, starting with the last question, it seems to me that there are two problems which need solving. One uh, is the size. We are too large, we need to be reduced, and there are ways of doing that without election. Uh, and the second is uh, that uh, there are people in the House of Lords who are in the House of Lords because the government wanted to honour them, but actually uh, they make no contribution at all. Without naming names, I could, I could <laughs> suggest uh, a good number of people there whom the government made a lord, uh, and some of them almost as a matter of principle never turn up. And I think that's quite wrong. So the, the two problems that need to be addressed, and I think that they, those problems would not only be addressed but solved by the proposals of the, of the Wakem Commission. In terms of, of social class, I'm, I'm sure uh, that what Tim is, says is right. I would point out that in the House of Lords, there's still uh, a fair number of people who are Labour peers who came up the trade union route. So... Uh, in that sense, they're probably more representative than the Commons at the moment because there are not many people in the Commons at the moment who came up the trade union route, unless I'm mistaken. In terms of the 80%, 20%, I, I, I think it w I need to tease out what you meant by specialisation and how those specialists would get there. On the Royal Commission, we had a huge number of submissions from people who thought that there ought to be a certain number of people there from the, the British Medical Association, certain number of people there from industry, certain number of people from academe and so on. A lot of people believe that, but actually if you try to work out how you would find representative figures, it proved totally uh, Im Im impossible. I think I'll, I'll leave the first question was asked to, to other, other people. I've got nothing fresh to say on that. Thank you very much. Patrick. So what's the practical problem? Well, you know, I am not one of these people who thinks that the House of Lords is at all creditable in its current form. It has one huge uh, and paralyzing uh, bias. It's full of very old people. Uh, it has one <laughs> second very, very significant problem, which you know becomes absolutely manifest if you watch a single House of Lords debate, that every single member of the House of Lords is prey to the same delusion. And this delusion is that they themselves personally are a very important person. And their, their views should be listened to. They don't represent anybody. They don't speak for anybody else. But they are just a jolly important person, and you should just listen to what they say. Now, you, you combine those two things together, you get an absolutely depressing chamber. It's a complete waste of time, money, space, and everything else. I can't tell you how awful it is. <laughs> now, of course, Mark thinks that, but he won't say that. It is also, you know, the third and really huge problem is the corrosive self-interest of the members of the House of Lords. You, you, know, you could not get a better demonstration of it, I'm afraid, than the recent behaviour of David Steele. It is just terrible that these people are essentially an elite group defending elite privileges. They're very elderly, so sometimes they do nice things for the elderly and things like that. <laughs> and sometimes they're quite liberal, but you know, they don't speak for anybody except themselves. And in a modern liberal democracy, this is a, a kind of a, an offence to everything we all believe in. And we should all just 
get a grip and change it. And I think the government's nearly there. Let's, let's do it this time. Finally, the practical problem is that every single party, major party, went to the electorate and said they were in favour of a wholly elected or predominantly elected House of, House of Lords, and so they should keep their promises. Sure. Uh, yeah, um, the point about the 80-20 or 100 and then special categories, <coughs> um, interestingly I think um, the supposedly uh, blue labor guru, Morris Glassman, I think, um, is, is proposing something along those lines, some sort of corporatist solution. And I, I think Philip Blonde, um, the, the red Tory, so-called, is also interested in those kinds of uh, ideas as well. So, I mean, there, there is a market for those ideas. I think it's a small one, but it's, a, it's, it's possible. Um, the, the second um, thing I would say, in, in terms of the problem that's... Um, trying to be solved here. I mean, there are some practical problems. I mean, it's clear that, you know, there are some things wrong with the House of the Lords. The size is, is one obvious one. Um, and, and to some extent, um, although I'm slightly arguing against myself here, I, I can see that that is one possibility why the reforms in the white paper or some version of them may just may succeed because if you look at the last piece of legislation on the house of laws that did succeed which was basically a 1958 peerages act that that actually was set up to solve a particular problem in other words it, the, the house of laws just wasn't really working in terms of legislation at that point and something had to be done and actually as a byproduct interestingly enough that was the first time that women got into the house of lords uh, at that point. Um, and then finally, um, somebody brought up the, the question of whether um, having um, elected people would, would make that much of a difference. Uh, I think it would. You, you mentioned people being elected in Brussels and the, uh, the MEPs there. I mean, the, the European Parliament is the textbook example of giving people uh, power and giving them uh, democratic legitimacy and then over time them and the, the, the European Parliament as an institution gradually taking more and more um, power and gradually getting more and more involved in legislation for good or ill. So I mean I think that would happen. Um, let me deal with the, the, the last question first, the one about what's the practical problem. Well, the, the first one is I do not buy, i am be slightly polite on Patrick, I still have to persuade the House of Lords to pass my legislation. Um, I don't buy the idea that it's, that it's fine and there's nothing wrong with it, actually. If you want a very good analysis of that, read what Andrew Adonis said. Um, he made the point when he was Transport Secretary, so he, they actually had a Senior Secretary of State in the House of Lords. He said he, he took three really important decisions, long-term impact on the country. Never got questioned about them once. Um, and he's pretty scathing as somebody who was a practitioner. Um, I think actually the House of Lords could have a really important role. One that I think it would do very well and in fact would do very well with uh, peers who didn't have to get elected but had long term. Something that actually the House of Commons doesn't do brilliantly is actually have a longer term perspective. If you've actually got people who are there for 15 years and they know they're going to be, the House of Lords should actually look at some of our long term decision taking. For example, proposals for things like high speed rail, where you're looking at something that if we pass it, it's not going to be a you know, it's not going to be in place for, for twenty years. Um, you know, those kind of decisions, you could actually have a house which had a real role, a different
different role from the House of Commons, but which it could achieve very powerfully because it was actually elected. So it, it would be legitimate. So it could actually make its voice count. Um, the point about social class, I think the important thing is actually about social mobility. Um, it's perfectly true that if you look at what if, if you look at what people's immediate backgrounds are. Um, you have a point. But if you take me, I mean, my profession that I did before being a, uh, in Parliament was as an accountant, so that's, that's quite middle class. My father used to dig up holes in roads for the electricity company. So the important thing is, I was able to kind of do well at school, progress, get elected to Parliament, and then much to his surprise and my mother's surprise, uh, I'm a member of a Conservative uh, uh, coalition government, um, which is I'm not something they'd ever set out for me. So I think social mobility is what's important, because I think you, you're not necessarily going to have lots of people who um, haven't had the... If you haven't had good educational opportunities and opportunities to progress, you're not going to have huge numbers of people with poor educational backgrounds getting elected to uh, a parliament. And that's true if you look around the world. What you need to do is make sure that people from whatever background get the educational opportunities and get the chances to get elected so that there is that more diverse background. On, on that, uh, I will um, agree with you. Um, on the 80-100, the, the proposals that we've set out, we've said if you had 80%, all the party political members would have to be elected then the Appointments Commission would just deal with the 20% um, who were not party political, who would have to sit as crossbenchers. And they would look at a whole bunch of characteristics that they would be trying to achieve. And we, we put that in mainly because we think there's some merit um, in what the gentleman over there said about getting some people in with some current expertise, the sorts of people that, by the nature of their professions, wouldn't seek Elections. So people, for example, who'd had jobs like being a senior civil servant or people who'd been in the military uh, in a senior role or people who'd been senior police officers when actually because of their prior role it wouldn't really be appropriate. I saw a smile there and I said senior police officers. Um, but people for whom their previous role would mean that suddenly becoming partisan in a political way wouldn't be appropriate. Um, and that's how we see the Appointments Commission working. So we did think there was a role for that. But I agree with, with Richard. The Commission looked at this and the, the difficulty of sort of picking a whole bunch of institutions and sort of giving them a, a set of seats um, sounds a good idea in theory and I often see it enunciated, but it's actually rather difficult to achieve in practice. Thank you very much. Well, the final thing we're going to do tonight is to take a straw poll, and there isn't a yes-no answer to this, so we're going to ask um, four questions. Um, the first one, and actually it's not something that's really received a lot of attention tonight, do you think the House of Lords should be abolished outright? There are plenty of non-federal democracies that only have one chamber, Sweden is an example, and it works perfectly well. Are you leading the audience here? Let me suggest that the possibility exists. Um, so if you think that's a good idea, that the House should be abolished outright, um, please put up your hand, and Alex will try and take the count. The next question, do you think that the House of Lords should be wholly elected? Put your hand up. And as an alternative, do you think that the House of Lords should be mainly elected with some appointed element? And that doesn't mean you have to agree with every point of detail in the draft bill, but mainly elected and some appointment. And finally, 
do you think that the House of Lords should be wholly or mainly appointed? And that doesn't necessarily mean appointed um, in the way that it is at the moment, appointed in some way, wholly or mainly appointed. Okay. Alex. So, the results are... Um, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> overwhelmingly in favour of election... So either wholly elected or largely elected. Um, and I think the wholly elected just had it, just by about eight votes. I thought it was two to one. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was the other way around. That's why we have elections. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think we, we, we get the, sense, the general sense of it at any rate. Well, look, th thank you very much to our speakers. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>